Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast. We are so glad that our secular church of stories has reached you and is hopefully helping you through your day. If you can help us keep our mission alive to help people tell their stories and tell them better by becoming a supporting member at any amount, it not only helps pay for this podcast, but all of the other programs we run by letting us pay the people who make them happen. The reader completes the writer, as they say, so thank you so much for making this all possible. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, featuring live true stories from the many stages of So Say We All. I know it's only September, but if you're familiar to these parts, you can already feel autumn settling on our Southern California landscape. The dirt starts to smell louder, like boiled peanuts, or at least I think it does. The cactus flowers have bloomed just on time and all the bees came back. The crows are flying around like curtains every time the sun goes down. It's a whole carnival. And speaking of carnivals, the So Say We All Unlife Fun Drive Halloween Party is coming up on Saturday, October 14th here in San Diego. So you better get your tickets now off our website, SoSayWeAllOnline.com. And start thinking of your costumes. Don't put it off. You always regret it when you do. So to get us in the mood for all that today, we're going to play you a show titled Season of the Witch, where you're going to meet a lovely flock of characters, the first of which is Amanda Kassar with her story, Wish Fulfillment. I've wanted to be a witch since I was young. I wasn't just calling it that at the time. By middle school, I had chosen the crow as my personal patronus. It, it was something of an affectation. I wanted to be different. I was shy, neurotically parented by Catholic Middle Eastern immigrants. It was an act of rebellion. I figured out by looking at my picture Bible that the part of Jordan that my family's from used to worship a heathen god called either Baal or Moloch. Many think Moloch demanded child sacrifice, but other scholars think Moloch was a fire god, a solar deity. In any case, I decided this ancient tradition was way more badass than kneeling in church and muttering dozens of Hail Marys. My way of translating this weird pagan heritage was to wear multiple incarnations of pewter dragon pendants with fake crystal balls clenched in their claws. I kept a luggy rabbit foot. I delighted in pointing out the difference between a pentagram and a pentacle. <laughs> and witches could be sexy. I figured this out from characters in fantasy novels. When the internet became a thing in our household, I suddenly found a playground, a place where I could try on new persona. I spent countless hours hanging out in chat rooms, lounging in figurative corners, digitally smirking, imagined violet eyes flashing. I fell in love with people thousands of miles away based on factors like the font they employed, their, their, their linguistic prowess their favorite quotation in their AOL profile. <laughs> I checked out books on astral projection from my local library and spent many a sleepless night by candlelight, trying to send my spirit to liaise with distant internet bows while I slept. It never worked. I was to remain a virgin both in soul and body for a while yet. <laughs> When it came time for the Catholic sacrament of confirmation, I refused. I still remember my mother screaming, it's all those dragon books you've been reading. And in a way she was right. 
a world of magic was way more alluring and promised to produce more tangible results than a world of waiting for prayers to be answered. What I wanted most was to be powerful, to connect to forces lying dormant, to have a semblance of control. Magic can be a lot of things, the law of attraction, the secret. Catholics ask saints to serve as ambassadors to God on their behalf, much as witches call on elementals to tap into bigger forces. Your particular brand of magic just de depends on your belief system. Recently, the convergence of my religions heavy metal, astrology, and cat videos. <laughs> Came together to spawn an, an unholy fa Facebook algorithm that suggested I attend a free sigil magic class. What the hell is a sigil, I thought. Well, I went to the class to find out. The class was held, of course, at Lestat's on Park Boulevard. <laughs> I mean... Where give a free magic class besides the only 24-hour coffee shop in San Diego, named after my favorite foxy fictional vampire? <laughs> a sigil, I discovered, is simply a pictographic representation of an intention or desire. The lovely people putting on the class are in an organization called Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO for short. Alistair Crowley, who lived in the early 20th century, was a Brit branded by the press as the wickedest man in the world because he was unabashed in his drug use, bisexuality, and witchiness in general. He is a Christian turned occultist as well, and he helped popularize the OTO. Crowley simply defied magic as the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. And the main principle to follow is, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, you should do whatever you darn well please. It's actually best to. The San Diego contingent of the OTO is a very sweet group who earnestly want to share their magical practice with whomever joins them at Lestats. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was delighted because this was ritual magic, but without all of the ridiculous cloak and dagger ceremony that had so captivated me when I was younger. I socked away the handouts and my practice sigils and didn't really think about it for a while. It would take a major crush on a boy for me to give sigil magic a real life shot. <laughs> Last year I was seeing this guy I met through mutual friends and I'm being very literal when I use the word seeing because <laughs> most of my contact besides a polite hug was through eyesight alone. <laughs> he was a musician and a big reader, a major turn on. If you've been a bookseller for as long as I have, you're bound to turn sapiosexual. <laughs> We'd go out for crepes, went to jazz at Panama 66 and to the symphony. We binge watched Altered Carbon and American Gods together. His favorite movies though are classic films like Casablanca. <laughs> and he's a doting cat dad. Needless to say, I was smitten, but nothing was happening romantically. I broached the subject and was gently brushed off. It was really confusing because after we would hang out, he'd say, so when will I see you again? This went on for almost six months. I kept thinking about him and plotting what I could do. Then one day this guy surprised me with a visit to my work. Um, I'm a, the marketing coordinator at Warwick's in La Jolla. Outside of Warwick's is a giant chess set. These chess sets are badass. 
made out of teak, hand carved by a local artisan and all that hipster shit. <laughs> they, they cost just a hair over $1,000. This guy, not only passionate about chess, but also a woodworker, admired it and joked, hey, help me steal that chess set. We laughed. Then a few months later, as I was clocking in, I saw that chess set sitting in our office. What's that? I asked my manager. Oh, that's the old chess set. We're commissioning a new one, so I'm just storing it back here. It's really beat up. What are you going to do with it? I asked. I was thinking of raffling it off among the employees who are interested, he said. And that's how I decided that my first foray into magic would be in service to trying to impress a guy. <laughs> Apparently, I'm still 15 years old inside. So I set my mind to designing the sigil. First, I had to phrase what I wanted both completely and succinctly. Pop culture is full of cautionary tales about wishing incorrectly, um, so I didn't want uh, wacky hijinks to ensue. <laughs> uh, after much thought, I eventually landed on I win Collins' chess set. Simple and building another degree of certainty into the equation by using a possessive, stated in present tense as if it has already occurred. Then you remove the vowels from the sentence, because I guess vowels are just flighty little, fil little filler sounds anyway. Then you take the leftover consonants and cobble them into a symbol, all the while really feeling the state of life that would occur if the magic happened. <laughs> I agonized over my sigil. Once the sigil seemed, seems right, you draw it for the ritual. I had this really delicate Japanese rice paper that I'd gotten as a gift. Um, I didn't know what to do with, but it seemed perfect for this case. You're supposed to use it for prayers, but <laughs> it seemed good. <laughs> um, next, you have to activate the sigil. You get comfortable, light some incense, a candle, soft music, whatever. Then you focus on it till it shifts somehow. I stared long enough. <laughs> for it to feel as, the air, as if the air around me held its breath. And the sigil seemed to writhe. Perhaps it was just my eyes, worn out from staring at something for 20 minutes by candlelight. <laughs> but for whatever reason, I suddenly knew that this symbol that I had so intentionally fashioned was alive. You take that sigil and then you fucking burn it. <laughs> and that's the end of working a sigil. You're supposed to set it and forget it. Go about your business having completely put the spell working out of mind. Once the sigil is burned, it's done. Just energy moving into the ether and working its magic. But there was a problem. I could not simply <laughs> set it and forget it. The day of the raffle, I kept feeling something askew. I tried to talk myself out of the feeling that it would not be my name drawn out of that basket. Berated myself for my disbelief. Our manager pulled the name at high noon, and the winner was not me. <laughs> Irene. Irene was on her way out. She'd been intensively training me all week because I was taking her position as marketing coordinator. <sighs> I'm so foolish. What was I thinking? Magic sigils. Anyway, it makes sense that Irene should win such a relic before she left Warwick's. I congratulated her as she lugged the chess set back to her desk. We got back to work. I was camped next to her desk, so I ended up resting my elbows atop the chess set. I casually asked, so what are you gonna do with it? She had no idea. Her sweetheart loves chess, she told me, but she had texted him with a picture and he saw the condition it was in and rejected it. There was an awkward pause. And then she said, why, you want it? 
internal scream. <laughs> what? Uh, you don't want it? Well, I only entered because I thought he might like it, or I thought maybe I'd donate it to the library for kids to play. <laughs> Fuck the children! I screamed in my head. I mean, gosh, I mean, if you really don't want it. So that's how I ended up dragging this chest set up to the second story of a North Park apartment complex and knocking on this guy's door. Last time he'd seen it, he'd asked me to help him steal it. So he opened the door on me, patting the chest set and smirking. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> a few months later, after I'd gone to see him graduate with his doctorate in computer music, he ghosted on me. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty bummed. For a while, I fretted that I had frittered away my first magical act on a fool's errand. But I've since interpreted the moral of my story. Be selfish. <laughs> Be satanic. That is, take care of your own self. Put your energy into something that will benefit you. That isn't somehow attempting to circumvent another being's will or well-being. I certainly enjoyed bringing him something he aesthetically and intellectually enjoys, but my ulterior motives were not pure, not for my own edification. I was trying to twist our connection into something it was not. I recently talked a few friends of mine into working a sigil with me on the last full moon. It was a magic for a more pragmatic purpose, a sigil for us to find the perfect home to rent together. So I know it sounds like an impossible fucking wish, but I think our sigil will work. So to that end, if any of you knows of a four bedroom house under $2,500, please let me know. That was Amanda Kassar. Second on the list is Ariana Remmel with Becoming Hermione. Better? Okay. Some of my Ariana earliest Remmel. memories. Third are of up, me the and good, my little sister staying up past our the fuck out? What's going on? So here? that dad could read us just one Ariana Rebel. chapter of Harry Potter. Third up, the, the good David Stone. Schmidt treats us to the tale how I met my I am peeking. Doing on. a different voice God for each it. character. When I got older, our family would make a whole night out of the midnight book releases and the movie premieres. When the fifth book was published, I locked myself in the bathroom to read it cover to cover without interruption, barely distracted by the wailing of my younger siblings outside the door. After that, my parents bought two copies of the books. I never really liked Harry, though. I mean, like, I get that he was the chosen one, but why did he have to be such a whiny, privileged fuckboy about it? <laughs> like, we all know who the brains of the operations was. Hermione Granger. <laughs> Hermione was brilliant and charismatic. She stood up for herself and what she thought was right, never complaining or falling back. And on top of that, she had a deep, intuitive understanding of magic. For Hermione, magic just worked. It gave her universe a sense of order and meaning. Hermione worked hard to learn all of its secrets. She would wave her wand and say the right words, and the world would open up before her. I wanted so much to be just like her, to become her if I could. But the thing was, my life was very different. By all accounts, I had a perfectly normal childhood, but it was entirely devoid of magic and, in fact, very lonely. 
I didn't have many friends, and I felt alienated from my siblings whose attempts to connect with me made me feel even more out of place. Their idea of family activities involved shopping at crowded malls, a place that generally gave me a stomachache. I just wanted to bury myself in books about magic. I immersed myself in a realm of dragons and witches, fairies and mermaids. Harry Potter was only the start. By the time I was a teenager, I had filled my room with piles of magic and fantasy books that overflowed the shelves. Mom never understood my attraction to the arcane, but Dad, he was right there with me. We had our own little book club, hiding in the library, reading in parallel, or listening to an audiobook. My dad is a kind, loving man who has made a career out of helping people through their delusions. As a geriatric psychiatrist, he mostly works with severely demented old folks and patients he calls bad nursing home residents. We both spent a lot of time experiencing other people's realities and actually finding joy in them, giving us a kind of closeness that was really special to me as a lonely kid. But for as much time as I spent in made-up fantasies where I could fly or cast spells, I was pretty good at making my way through uncertainty with science. I spent so much time looking for magic around me that I learned a kind of objectivity that allowed me to see the world for what it really was. I might not know where to find fantastic beasts, but I could explain the color of leaves and the shapes of clouds with all the science I'd learned. It's amazing what you can find when you go looking for magic with an open mind. Instead of being disappointed by the banality of reality, I became enthralled with the wonders of science. When I took chemistry for the first time in 10th grade, I decided to memorize the elements and their properties. This was the kind of thing I did back then for fun. <laughs> Um, the thing is, uh, I had multiple copies of the periodic table that were all slightly different than the one I had learned in school. I asked my teacher, Mr. Hickman, about it, but he was pretty fed up with my constant questions as I tended to be several chapters ahead of the class. And so, when I asked him about the discrepancies I'd found, Mr. Hickman told me, look, I know what I told you, but nothing is ever that simple. Chemistry is the science of lies. And the more chemistry you take, the more you will realize just how many lies you've been told. <laughs> I think this was meant to shut me up, but it did quite the opposite. I mean, I knew magic wasn't real, but science, like I still had some hope that there was wonder left in the world, that there was something glorious just around the corner. If only I could put my head down and learn the skills to find it, like Hermione had done with magic. I was after the truth with a capital T, and I absolutely would not stand for being lied to. This search led me away from home in Arkansas, first to boarding school in Massachusetts, then to college in Oregon. Through all of it, my dad supported me in my decisions, even though they took me farther and farther away from him. We talked on the phone nearly every day, keeping up with our favorite books and shows. We stayed just as close as when I was little. But then things changed for both of us. Graduating from college was a pretty traumatic experience for me. There was a breakup with a boy that I thought I might marry, all of my friends moving away and losing touch, the death of my college mentor who I loved like a mother, I felt alone and stuck with no place to go. I needed my dad more than ever. But dad's behavior was getting erratic. He was spending disastrous amounts of money on things like guns and drones. He and my mother were fighting. He would say awful things about her to me, and I would leave our conversations feeling shocked and hurt. 
When I went home to visit, he would be aloof or entirely absent, spending hours on end uh, with no explanation. And he could be in the best moods one minute or screaming profanities at another. I tried so hard to connect with him, to support him through whatever he was going through, but it was so confusing, like I was supposed to be the parent. Dad was so angry, it broke my heart. He seemed to drift farther away every day. Then one day, I finally broke. I told my dad that he couldn't keep talking to me about his problems with my mom. I felt like he was attacking me for having a relationship with her. He told me I was operating under some sort of magical realism, that I was being delusional. He talked at me like I was one of his patients instead of his family. Our unspoken contract was broken and reality came crashing in. Shaking and in tears, I wrote myself a script so that I wouldn't forget what I wanted to say, and I called him. I told him that he had become too toxic for me to have in my life. I was struggling with my own shit, and he was only making things worse. I had to take care of myself, and that meant I had to let him go. At first, that helped me feel settled. I'd moved here to San Diego and gotten a job in a chemistry lab where I got to focus on science full time. But I was so depressed that most days started with me crying on my way to lab, working late into the night, then going home to cry some more. Every unoccupied moment was spent buried in sci-fi and fantasy books. I thought about that time Hermione had to erase her parents' memories to protect them. I was kind of in the opposite boat though, trying to forget about the hurt my dad had caused me so that I could protect myself. A couple months after I cut off conversations with dad, mom called. She was sobbing. The hospital, where dad worked, was worried about his erratic behavior, as we all were, but they demanded that he take a drug test, which he refused. Um, he had gotten himself mixed up with opioids, among other illicit substances, and his options were either to go to rehab or lose his medical license. So mom was driving him to rehab. It all started to make sense. It was almost a relief, really, but he had been using, abusing drugs for years, and he had lied to me about it. Dad could have come clean with me on so many different occasions, but instead he chose his drugs and he lost me. As far as I was concerned, my dad was dead. The next year was perhaps the hardest of my life. Crying on the way to work turned into panic attacks on the highway to run even the briefest errands. My mother fell apart at the seams while my siblings and I tried to hold our family together. Dad finished rehab and moved into sober living while mom tried to figure out if she could get their marriage annulled. She often called in the middle of the night in a rage about how our lives had fallen apart. But as long as she was on the phone with me, I knew my younger siblings were being spared. It took everything I had just to get up in the morning and start another day in hell. My entire foundation had been blown to smithereens and the only thing I had left was my search for something real. I missed the days I could get lost in Hermione's world, ones where good conquered evil, where magic was real and helped people build a better world. In my reality, there was no joy and there was no magic, but there were still atoms, dancing and vibrating through space until they collided with just the right energy to make something new. Despite what Mr. Hickman had once told me, molecules don't tell lies, people do. Chemistry was all I had to hold on to, and I clutched to it for dear life. I soon found myself with a new foundation in graduate school. I had always been good at school, so going to classes gave my life structure. I made new friends, started new hobbies. Life kind of started over. 
I filled notebook after notebook with experiments and results. They were not all good, but they were something. I tried to think of it like being in potions class. I mean, I was making a living by creating new molecules from obscure chemicals with long, intricate names. I taught my students how to write out equations that looked like incantations from a distance. In a way, I felt like I was becoming Hermione. Through a lot of hard work, I was putting my life back on track. It had been a year and a half since I'd talked to my dad, so long that I almost did not miss him. I had proven to myself at least that I didn't need him. But in all of that time, with all the work I'd done to fix things, I wanted him to be a part of it. It started with a call every once in a while, small talk mostly, questions about my research. Over the next year, Dad started working again, but he didn't do much else besides sleep in his reclining chair and go to AA meetings. It felt like that man in the chair was just a shadow of who my dad used to be. The man I had known as my father was unreachable. I had to come to terms with the fact that life would probably never be the same. Science was no longer enough. Objectivity could not help me accept this reality. Logic and reason were not going to fix my dad. I had to find new skills, skills that I could not learn just by being in the lab. So I started to write. I wrote stories about science at first, and then stories about me. I started practicing curiosity, not just about things outside of myself, but also about the thoughts going on inside my head. Instead of taking nature walks outside, I started to walk slowly and methodically through my memories, writing down the ones that brought me the most joy. I stopped thinking about the world as it was. I thought about what I wanted it to be, and then I started to make that my reality. For so long, I had been just getting by, but now I was starting to thrive. I looked around and I was surrounded by friends and family who cared for me. I fell in love, got my heart broken, and found that I had the support to get me through it. And so, this past Christmas holiday, I curled up on a couch in my childhood home, covered in dogs with my dad in his chair, and we marathoned all of the Harry Potter movies. So many things look just the same. Our home has changed very little through all of this, and Hermione certainly has not aged a wink on the golden screen. But in reality, everything is so very different. My life now is actually so much better than I thought it could have been. See, I used to think that magic was about making potions and casting spells. I thought it was going on adventures in search of enchanted treasures or magical creatures. I used to think that the world was something you discovered through careful observation. But that was before my life fell apart. And after all of that, I found real magic in putting it back together. I thought that delving into science and chemistry would bring me closer to the world of magic I had imagined as a kid. But at the end of the day, nothing but magic could have brought my dad back, who today is doing as well as I've ever seen him. And our relationship is stronger than it's ever been. Turns out, I didn't need to become Hermione at all. I just needed a little help becoming myself. Ariana Remmel. Third up, the good David Schmidt treats us to the tale, How I Met My Dead Uncle Steve. Here's David. I sat before the priestesses in their long white robes. The eldest one relayed a message from my dead Uncle Steve. 
while the other three nodded serenely with their eyes closed. What the priestesses didn't know was that Uncle Steve didn't exist. I came up with the idea one night at the old sod while chatting with the bartender, Sarah. When she told me she had visited a spiritualist church recently, my eyes went wide. Spiritualists? Like the people who say they can talk to the dead? They have their own church? Uh-huh, she said with a smile. It's right here on Adams Avenue. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's when I came up with the experiment. I would go and I would ask them to put me in touch with a dead person who had never existed. A dead uncle, say. If they really had some kind of psychic knowledge, they'd tell me, sorry, David, no such person is here. If they sent me greetings from the fake uncle, of course, then I'd have proven them wrong. I didn't plan on exposing them in public. I'd just write a couple articles about the experience. <laughs> Why bother, though? Plenty of skeptics throughout history have set out to expose mediums. I mean, Harry Houdini did it over 100 years ago. For me, though, this was personal. I had grown up around people like this. I was raised in the world of evangelical Christianity. It was a far cry from spiritualism, which our pastors described as witchcraft, along with psychics and Zen Buddhism and yoga and Harry Potter. <laughs> and yet, our church had more in common with spiritualism than we thought. Both groups claimed to have a direct line to the supernatural. We had pastors who would give us personal messages from God, which usually had something to do with reading the Bible more or not masturbating so much. <laughs> People in our church knew what God thought about everything, from abortion to the gays to the topless scene in Titanic. <laughs> Most importantly, they knew how the afterlife worked. They knew who got into heaven and who wouldn't make the cut. As I grew older, it made less and less sense. While I never stopped believing in God, I rejected the cocky self-assuredness of my childhood church. I felt defrauded, betrayed by those who claimed to speak for God, and I was determined never to be duped again. I grew obsessed with exposing anyone who claimed to have a clear view of the supernatural. Of course, I would never be able to travel back in time and tell off my pastors. Still, I could confront people who were similar to them, and that's where the spiritualists come in. <laughs> I could prove them wrong. I would prove them wrong, and I would publish the story. That Sunday was unusually cloudy. I parked on Adams next to the darkened Ken Cinema, and I found the building Sarah had mentioned, an old Victorian house. I was already imagining the interior, a dark parlor straight out of Disneyland's haunted mansion, black curtains, human skulls, crystal balls. I entered and walked down the long hallway. The floorboards creaked as loudly as they do in every haunted house movie. If you're thinking about walking down that hallway, don't coming this summer. <laughs> and at the end of the hall, where I had been ready to find the skulls and crystal balls, I saw a well-lit living room. About 70 very ordinary-looking people sat in rows of chairs facing a low platform. On the platform was a pulpit, a piano, and four women in long white robes, the priestesses of spiritualism. 
I took my seat quietly and looked around for anything that looked like a Ouija board or a seance table. One of the priestesses sat at the piano and addressed the congregation. You can find the words to the first hymn in your bulletin. <laughs> hymn? The first chord sounded oddly familiar. I, I checked the bulletin. Opening hymn, it is well with my soul? <laughs> Wait, but that was a normal Christian hymn. I sang it dozens of times in my childhood. Was this really the spiritualist church that Sarah told me about? I felt cheated. Where were the creepy occult symbols, the Ouija boards? Where was all the witchcraft, for Christ's sake? The disillusionment quickly gave way to a soothing opiate comfort. The spiritualist service was exactly like the church services of my childhood. The hymns, the greetings, the feel-good sermon, even the smell of the place was the same as Bethel Baptist Community Church. The combination of aging books, dusty carpet, and bad perfume and cologne, it smelled like church. For a second, I almost forgot where I was. Then a tall brunette minister in her 40s reminded me. She stood at the pulpit after the sermon and announced, now is the time for the greetings from spirit. A hush fell over the crowd. I slowly pulled out my notebook. Giving honor to God and the angel kingdom, the priestess said, we welcome the messages from spirit. The other three white-robed ministers sat behind her, nodding slowly. After addressing two members of the congregation, she pointed at me. I'm getting a message for you. There are a lot of changes in your life. You need to leave the past behind and focus on becoming the person you really want to be. This was all completely, entirely accurate. <laughs> it was hard not to take it as a personal message for me until I listened to what she told the other people. Their messages applied to me too because they were applicable to any human being on the planet. The minister told one young lady to stop and smell the roses and not stress so much. A tall, thin man needed to focus on the positives and ignore the negatives. When she came back to me with another message, it was maddeningly vague. I see something related to work, either a change in work or a lot of work, or you're out of work. <laughs> But something about work in your life. <laughs> what a crappy message from the spirits. This was the best they could do. Something about work is happening. <laughs> I came all the way to the gateway of the netherworld for this. <laughs> After about 20 minutes, the tall priestess was running out of steam. When she addressed a middle-aged man who looked like some kind of accountant, she struck out entirely. I see the letter E. What does that mean to you? Oh, uh, nothing I can think of. <laughs> ah, but whose name is that? No one's, I, I don't know anyone with the letter E. Uh, well, I, I'll just leave you with that E. <laughs> Disquiet filled the room. People shifting nervously in their seats. A second minister stepped up to the pulpit to spell the tall woman. This one was a kind-faced older woman with short gray hair and ample smile lines. After introducing herself as Reverend Millie and repeating the dedication to the Angel Kingdom, she immediately called on me. I'd like to address you as well. She smiled beatifically. 
May I give you a message from spirit? I nodded. I'm getting the letter S. Does that mean anything to you? Here it goes. My chance to test out the fake ghost on her. I made a surprised face, paused for dramatic effect, and finally I stammered, <laughs> yes, uh, that's, that's my Uncle Steve. And your Uncle Steve, is he in the body or out of the body? I looked down at my lap. He, he's passed on. There are a lot of things you had in common with him, aren't there? Absolutely. Your relationship with him wasn't all a bed of roses, though. It was complicated. But you know what? He wants you to focus on the good things. Stay positive, because he's got a lot of surprises in store for you. So the experiment had worked. She sent me a message from a spirit who didn't exist. But still, I felt unsatisfied. I wanted more. When the service ended and the congregants started to leave, I approached Reverend Millie and I introduced myself. I was wondering, Reverend, do you see anything else for my uncle? She gripped my upper arm and closed her eyes for a moment. A peaceful matronly smile covered her face. I am getting something else now, David. I, I see an airplane. Does that relate to your uncle Steve? So I played along. I made up a story about Steve going on a trip and he wouldn't take me with him. I know you want to travel, David, but the real journey is within. She pointed at my heart and she looked into my eyes with nothing but sincerity and kindness. That inward journey, when you leave the past behind and learn to really be yourself and be free, that's the only journey that matters. And the message hit home, painfully so. I had been trying to break free from the world I was raised in for years. And as I thought about her words, something really strange happened. I started to lose my grip. I couldn't stay detached any longer. The genuine compassion glistened in her eyes. That familiar church smell overwhelmed my senses. Something in the rational part of my brain short-circuited. Emotions and memories were stirred, shaken loose, resurrected. I'm getting another letter, David, she said softly. I see the letter L. She gripped my arm tighter. My guard was coming down. Does the letter L mean anything to you, David? And the rain slipped out of my hands. I let go. Without thinking, I answered her immediately. Yes, that's my dad. My dad's name is Len. And when Reverend Millie said, he's alive, right? I thought, she knows. She's tapped into something. And when she rubbed my arm and said, your dad's a good man, I thought, she can see my soul. He's a good person, David, but there's some other stuff between you two. Things aren't always easy with your father, are they? The tears welled up behind my eyes, and I forgot all about trying to test the spiritualists. This woman had the goods on me. I knew it, because it was all true. Family life wasn't easy. It never was. I thought of all the arguments with my dad growing up, the rumble of hellfire and banishment always lurking in the background. I stared into Reverend Millie's eyes. They shone with kindness and understanding. I was daring to believe. I longed to believe. I wanted to know that this woman had the answers. She had a direct line to God or the angels or the spirits or something. And she had some secret knowledge that would heal all the wounds of the past. A glimmer of hope from early childhood shimmered. It was possible to know what happened after death. 
to understand the mechanics of the universe, Reverend Millie could make it all better. Life could make sense again. Then I thought about what she was saying about my dad. She had also said the exact same things about my Uncle Steve. <laughs> I left the church and walked out into the drizzling rain. I had won, of course. I had proven the spiritualists wrong. But in a more significant sense, I had lost. Reverend Millie had given me a taste of eternity, only for it to be ripped from my hands all over again. This was the price of proving her wrong, reliving the loss of childhood faith. Hope handed to me and then taken away, the wound torn open again. I wish I could still believe. I wish Reverend Millie had all the answers. I wish somebody did. But Uncle Steve doesn't exist. David Schmidt, everybody. Next up, it's Jennifer Coburn with The Little Witch. Like many little girls, I grew up obsessed with The Wizard of Oz. But it wasn't Dorothy I identified with. The character I wanted to be was the Wicked Witch of the West. Sure, she was scary, but she was a boss. She had a flying broom, an army of monkeys, and she knew how to make an entrance in a big poof of red smoke. And if you messed with her sister and took her ruby slippers, the witch was gonna fuck you up. <laughs> the witch was big and powerful and all eyes were on her. As a scrappy little first grader, a child so small that I was on a doctor-prescribed daily regimen of high-fat, high-protein milkshakes, that kind of big had great appeal. The Wicked Witch of the West wasn't just physically imposing. Yes, she had the pointy hat and the green face, but more importantly, she was in full control of her life. Unlike myself, who often felt like I was in the midst of a tornado. My mother and I lived in a studio apartment in Greenwich Village, which by day was vibrant with my mother's actor friends. And by night, it was filled with a string of gay guys she pretended to be engaged to for their work events. <laughs> that part was wonderful. But in the quiet of the night, after my mother thought that I had fallen asleep, I heard her crying on the phone about how she wasn't sure she would make rent that month. My parents had recently divorced after a five-year marriage. They met while living the breezy lives of 20-somethings in the 1960s and mistakenly mistook, <laughs> and naively mistook their love of Greenwich Village with the love of one another. According to my father, my mother became too focused on middle-class middle -class acquisitions like wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. He said, when I met your mother, she was a spunky little beatnik who could roll a joint with one hand. <laughs> now all she wants is a Hoover vacuum. <laughs> my mother said they divorced because my father, all he ever wanted to do now was get high and stare at a fishbowl. We didn't have a carpet, but my mother had just landed a secretarial job at the New York Times, and I thought we were doing okay until the night that I heard her sobbing about our financial problems. I needed to do something. One of the things that I always loved about the Wicked Witch was that she made shit happen. Life wasn't happening to her, she was happening to it. As much as I wanted these type of superpowers, I, kn I knew I didn't have them, but still I needed to do something. 
I had to take action. So I decided to have a sidewalk sale of anything in our apartment that I thought we could do without. <laughs> I sold our teacups. We never really used them. I sold my mother's cinnamon color suede boots that she said pinched her toes. And I sold her copy of The Fear of Flying because she didn't really seem afraid of airplanes. <laughs> we lived across the street from the Quad Cinema, a new concept in movie viewing in the 1970s where four different movies played all under the same roof. So it gave our apartment building on West 13th Street some good foot traffic the perfect place for a first grader sidewalk sale. A lanky woman in a safari print wrap dress approached. She cheerfully bought our sugar bowl, but pressed her lips together with pity when she saw that laid out on the blanket with the rest of my wares was my mother's diaphragm. <laughs> when my mother returned from work that evening, I proudly handed her the $50 that she needed for rent. She reached and withdrew her hand three times before finally taking the cash and tucking it into her purse, telling me, honey, don't sell any more of our stuff. <laughs> to make matters worse, my father was off in England pursuing his music career, promising that when he returned, it would be with a million dollar record contract. He wanted to do right by us, but the problem was he just didn't have much capacity for the mundane realities of life. His generous instincts didn't do us much good because he was always broke and high and gone. Earlier that year, he called me at four o'clock in the morning from London to tell me that he was sitting in a bathtub having a bad LSD trip. And then he cried telling me about his sister's polio diagnosis. 40 years earlier. I wanted to be a good daughter and comfort him, but on the other hand, I was like, I know you're really struggling, Daddy, but I'm six years old and I have, I have show and tell tomorrow. And also, what's LSD? My father ended that middle of the night acid trip phone call telling me as he often did that I was the only person in the world who truly understood him. The tenderness was thrilling but also unsettling. It was a special connection that felt sacred but at the same time counterfeit because the truth was at six years old I really didn't understand his emotional complexity. But even then I realized that if the only person my father thought understood him actually didn't, then he was completely alone in the world. Worse, it was my inability to understand him that had left him there. While my father was tripping in London, my mother was looking for a sleepaway camp. All right. All right, so that was, my father's not the only one tripping. <laughs> While my father was tripping in London, my mother was looking for a sleepaway camp for me. New York City in July was like Dante's Inferno if Dante were a pimp, <laughs> doused in whiskey and urine. My mother took on extra hours at work and found Camp St. Regis, located right on the curve of a small, uh, in a small bay in East Hampton with craggly white cabins and a beach that was all ours. 
My cabin was filled with six-year-old little girls who all smelled like copper tone and chapstick. The older girls wore halter tops and cork wedge sandals and squirted themselves with Love's Baby soft perfume before sneaking out to boys' camp in the middle of the night to tell knock-knock jokes and go to second base. This place was heaven. <laughs> camp was surprisingly affordable considering the fancy location and the fact that it had sailing lessons and horseback riding lessons and every other sport imaginable. But the best part of camp was that at the end of every summer, they did a big musical. And that year, the production was The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> where I was sure to be cast as the witch. <laughs> <laughs> Among the other campers and counselors, I was known for running around straddling a broom and cackling and screeching lines from the movie, especially that I'd get them and their little dog, too. <laughs> While other campers were experimenting with counselors' makeup, trying to be pretty, I would use an entire palette of green eyeshadow to cover my face. I wasn't interested in beauty. It was power I sought. And it worked. I would get daily requests to cackle from the other kids. Some of them looked terrified, most were amused, but all paying attention. <laughs> Acting like a witch quickly became my thing. It was my place in the ecosystem of camp life, so I had no doubt that I would be, I would be cast as the role of the witch. But... <laughs> When the director, a 16-year-old basketball counselor, posted the cast list, it was like a house had been dropped on me. According to this freckle-faced point guard, <laughs> I was better suited to play the mayor of Munchkinland. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's an important role, he told me when I protested. The mayor was elected by the Munchkins because he was well-respected. He's a pivotal character. Now, at six years old, I didn't know what pivotal meant, but I knew bullshit. <laughs> Nobody gives a rat's ass about the mayor of Munchkinland because he doesn't do anything that matters. Does he live? Does he die? Do you remember what happens to the mayor? I don't because nobody gives a flying monkey about the mayor of Munchkinland. He's completely irrelevant. You, you could write in a whole new scene where the entire lollipop guild busts out baby Uzis and assassinates the mayor, <laughs> splattering his little guts everywhere. And the only way that this is going to affect the story at all is that now Dorothy would have to step over a dead little body on the yellow brick road because nobody cares about the mayor. What? The witch, on the other hand, she's integral to the plot. Without the witch, there is no story. There's no conflict. Nothing matters without her. The director explained that I was too small to play the witch. I was a good foot and a half shorter than Dorothy, and he said that it would be hard for the audience to believe that she felt threatened by me. Really? Was this guy for real? Dorothy and the witch don't do hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> 
witch has superpowers. She flies on a broom and casts spells. Did he even understand what a witch was? Why was this guy directing when he had absolutely no vision and zero understanding of the material? <laughs> I was so upset that I wrote my father a letter in England and I told him that camp was a cruel and unjust place and that in protest, I was going on a hunger strike. <laughs> I mailed the letter on my way to the mess hall where upon seeing that we were having macaroni and cheese for dinner, I promptly forgot all about my hunger strike. <laughs> the next day, the director had an epiphany. He told me that I seemed to have a lot of um, passion for the role, so he was gonna create a new part the Wicked Witch's little cousin who was visiting Oz for the weekend. <laughs> I'm thinking of calling her the Little Witch of the South. Can you do a Southern accent? Can I do a Southern accent? <laughs> All right, then, it's settled. You'll be the Wicked Witch's little sidekick. And I'll be in every scene with the witch. He rolled his eyes and agreed with a sigh, but whatever. My star was rising and all was right with the world again. Until late one night, I heard a voice burst into the counselor's room of the cabin. Where's Jennifer? Is she okay? Is she in the hospital? It was my father, straight off a plane from England. I held my hands over my mouth in horror, remembering that letter. My counselor, Mary, asked, why wouldn't she be okay? My father told her about my hunger strike, and Mary laughed and assured her that I hadn't skipped a single snack, let alone a meal. I heard him drop what I soon learned were grocery bags filled with life cereal and jars of Jif peanut butter. So my father, who could figure out how to make an international phone call while on LSD, never once considered calling the camp before taking a six-hour flight home and then stopping at the grocery store. I walked into the counselor's cabin. My father saw me and said, well, look who's awake. It's Gandhi. That was quite a scene you made over not being cast as a witch. Oh, right. I actually am a witch now. Are you mad? He pondered for a moment and then shrugged. No, baby, I guess, I guess it was just time for me to come home. I went on to play the Little Witch of the South at the end of the summer, and the Wicked Witch of the West and I wreaked havoc on Oz. We flew around casting evil spells. We conjured up a poppy field that knocked Dorothy out cold. And then we locked her up in our castle, turned over a sand timer, and told her that when that red sand ran out, she was dead. <laughs> we were fierce. In the end, the Wicked Witch of the West and I were killed by a bucket of water but we went down in a mad, cackling splash of glory. We went down fighting. And there was something powerful about that. As much as I loved my time on stage in The Wizard of Oz, the real magic for me that summer wasn't the show itself. It was learning that I had the power to create a new role for myself 
and change the script. I didn't need a broom. I didn't need ruby slippers. I just needed to realize that although I was small, my voice didn't have to be. I just needed to speak up, speak loudly, and demand to be heard. Thank you. That was Jennifer Coburn. Fourth on our stage, it's Shelley DeAngelis in her piece, The Magic Wand. My father was a magician. As far back as I can remember, he performed magic tricks at family gatherings. His sleight of hand maneuvers began in the US Army. An old black and white photo of him wearing fatigues and a broad smile shows him handling a deck of cards that look like a cascading waterfall. But in reality, they are, yikes, what am I doing? I can't tell you, or I would be violating the magician's credo. If there's one thing I learned from my father, never reveal the secret of the magic. Dad, his friends called him Hank, drove his way up the eastern seaboard from his childhood home in North Carolina and parked in New Jersey, where he met my mom, Vera. She was a secretary at Montgomery Wards, and one day Hank strolled in to cash a paycheck. My mom once told me, he looked like Clark Gable, and his paycheck had a big amount on it. He worked on the assembly line at Ford Motor Company, they dated briefly and then he shipped off to war. Hank landed at Omaha Beach, France on D-Day plus six. He cooked for the troops and 40 years later could still remember what he served his men the day they landed. Turkey. He served turkey sandwiches at lunch and turkey a la king for dinner. He also told me that the government issued him dehydrated eggs that would turn green when scrambled some sort of chemical reaction in the pan. That's when Hank befriended his wartime neighbors, France, Holland, Germany, wherever. He'd trade Lucky Strike cigarettes and Hershey bars for fresh eggs. Then I could make cakes, Dad told me. Dehydrated eggs didn't work in cakes. The cakes wouldn't rise. Anyway, somewhere between the turkey and the cakes, Hank performed magic. He married mom in 46 and soon they had a family of three daughters. What does a father do with three girls? Why teach them the art of prestidigitation, of course. Dad taught my two older sisters and me magic tricks with names like the little man from outer space, the dove box, and Chinese sticks. My family would bandy these names about in regular conversation. Nancy, the bossy one would bark, you do the cake trick, I'll do the, the Chinese sticks. Bonnie, the funny one, would giggle, no, I like the dove box, you do the cake trick. Me, the kind one, like, like a teenage nun, actually, would coo, I'll do the cake trick. Somebody iron the silk scarves for the square circle, Nancy would order. You know how daddy hates wrinkled scarves. Bonnie, Nancy, and I weren't particularly close, but we did form a triangle. Three distinct points connected by lines of DNA. Magic was not a passion of mine, not like for dad. It was simply my family's hobby. Some kids played tennis, others played an instrument. 
the Cranfords perform magic. We even had stage names. Bondini, Nandini, and Sheldini. <laughs> After we cleaned house on Saturday mornings, mom would make us lettuce and tomato sandwiches on toasted white bread smeared with mayonnaise. In the afternoon, dad would teach us what he referred to as patter, a kind of continuous, funny explanation to accompany the magic tricks. Learning how to do the actual trick wasn't that difficult. Memorizing the patter was. Dad didn't smile during those training sessions. Magic was serious business. He mostly demanded, louder, let him hear you in the back. And practice, practice, practice. Years later, Dad told us, I thought it would be a good way for you to learn how to speak in front of people. Teaching his daughter's life lessons was one of my father's most endearing traits. The Cranford magic words which summoned the spirits and completed the illusion were these. Hocus pocus, rotten tomatoes, pinto beans, and Irish potatoes. <laughs> my sisters and I would weave the black magic wand through the air and recite the family slogan with gusto and confidence. The spirits always arrived on cue. When we moved to Denver in 1972, Dad joined the Mile High Magician Society. He and Mom went to a costume party once. He dressed as the, he dressed as the uh, magician in a homemade satin cape and top hat. Mom as the ace of diamonds. She looked adorable in her black tights and boots. Bonnie, Nancy, and I all graduated from college and married. Our lives dominated by careers, homes, and children left little time for magic. Dad, however, continued to perform. Every Saturday, he'd lunch with his magician buddies at Furs Cafeteria. When my parents would visit my family and I in San Diego, Dad would perform magic for my children, Dylan and Michelle. They called him Opa, the German word for grandfather. Dad's memories of Germany during the war ran deep. In 2002, my oldest sister, Bonnie, was diagnosed with breast cancer. We lost her two years later. Our family assembled in Houston for her funeral. In his suitcase, Dad had packed one of the magic wands. He carried it with him to the cemetery. Dad, I asked, what's with the magic wand? He explained, when a magician dies, you break their wand. You bury them with it. Oh, I said. After the ceremony, the wand remained clutched in his hand. Go ahead, Dad. He was reticent, an attribute I'd never observed in him. He was always so hard-charging. I watched him struggle to break the wand. After a moment, he placed it atop her casket. The plastic was too tough for him to break. Four months later, Dad developed pneumonia. The doctors kept him alive long enough for me to fly from San Diego to Denver. Mom, Nancy, and I were at his side when he quietly slipped away. We left the hospital and plowed through the snowy roads to the home where my parents had lived for over 30 years. I sat down at the computer in my parents' office and wrote Dad's obituary. The lead almost wrote itself for his final magic effect.
Hank Cranford, past president of the Mile High Magician Society, passed to the great beyond. I reflected back to Bonnie's funeral. My dad, the magic wand he'd clutched, what he told me. He'd been showing me exactly what to do, as if Bonnie's funeral was practice for his own. I googled broken wand ceremony and clicked on the International Brotherhood of Magicians. As I read about the ceremony, tears dripped onto the back of my hand. I phoned Brad, a magician friend of Dad's. He'd performed at my parents' 50th wedding anniversary several years earlier. Brad's a funny guy. You just look at him and laugh. But we didn't laugh when I asked if he'd perform the broken wand ceremony at Dad's funeral. Suddenly, I found myself planning a show of sorts, a very sacred one. I would be speaking in front of people with confidence and ease, just like my dad had taught me. Little did I know these would be the circumstances. That evening, I trudged into the chilly basement in search of dad's green suitcase of magic. A frayed string hung from the ceiling. I tugged at it, and one stark light bulb illuminated the shadowy space. I opened the suitcase and took a deep, musty breath. Wrinkled scarves, the dollar bill trick, and the cake trick waited for the next show to begin. As I sorted through years of magical trappings, the yellow rubber chicken fell to the bottom. Suddenly, as if levitated from the depths of the satiny suitcase interior, his magic wand materialized. Dad would have been the last one to have touched it. I gripped the sides of the suitcase and leaned my weight onto it. After a moment, I reached for the wand. The black plastic felt cold and smooth in my hand. I pressed it to my heart. Dad's tool bench, a few feet away, is where I found the little hacksaw. The assignment I faced was difficult. Like purposely damaging a precious piece of art, I sawed a tiny, inconspicuous cut. Plastic shavings fell onto the bench, and I held it at eye level and nodded. That should do it. A few days later, the aroma of incense and flowers perfumed the air at the funeral mass at Church of the Risen Christ. I read aloud the only poem Dad ever mentioned, entitled, Abu Ben Adam. My 17-year-old son, Dylan, delivered a kind and heartfelt eulogy. Tears fell from his blue eyes when he said, I'll miss you, Opa. At the end of Mass, I introduced Brad to the congregation and invited him up to the lectern. He told those gathered that he knew Hank through the Brotherhood of Magicians and that he had always looked up to him as a mentor. Brad paused, as one might do before a prayer to collect one's thoughts. He raised his arm and displayed Dad's magic wand. Brad said, The wand in story and symbol is an age-old conjuring representation of mystery. To the uninitiated, it is but a piece of plastic. To Hank, it was a reminder of the joy and pleasure of an entertainment art that has existed since ancient times. This wand was for Hank, an historic emblem that linked him with others of like mind and heart in this vast fraternity of magic. Without Hank, the wand is now useless. The magic is never in the wand. 
It's in the person. Brad looked out at us, then fixed his eyes on the wand. He extended his arm in front of him, turned the magic wand horizontally, and clasped both ends. A crack echoed throughout the church. Brad continued, the magic that infused itself into the life of performing on this earth is now broken and joined with the magic of the eternal. The magic of earth is over. The magic and mystery of another realm awaits Hank and will soon be revealed. Brad stepped down and approached mom. Into her hands, he placed two, the two halves of plastic. She put them in her lap and patted him on the cheek. Family members caravan to Fort Logan National Cemetery. Cars snaked around the winding road until we came to a small shelter. When I stepped from the car, winter air blew into my face, but the sunshine eased the cold. We sat on metal folding chairs. The priest recited prayers. An American flag was methodically folded and handed to my mother. And then I placed the broken wand atop dad's casket. Sweet young soldiers played taps. Thank you. Shelley DeAngelis. Next up, Elaine Gingery brings to you her story, Top Hat Man. When I was 25, I landed my dream job, becoming the managing director for what was, at the time, the largest alternative theater in San Diego. Sledgehammer was an artist's wet dream. When people asked about what we did, we'd explain, we take a sledgehammer to theater, bust it the hell apart, and put it back together in ways people have never seen before. We were, to say the least, a little cocky. We didn't even sell traditional season tickets, no. Instead, you could sign up to be a repeat offender and come see our shows whenever you want, as many times as you want, for one low price. Sometimes there would be broken glass in the theater or other dangers to navigate. Often you'd be sitting in the dark space and a rat as big as a cat would scurry across the arch of the stage. This was largely due to the state of the building. St. Cecilia's Playhouse, our resident stage, was a 1930s funeral chapel turned theater space. <laughs> the founders had managed to get it named a historic building, which effectively assured we'd never get kicked out for a high rise building. But also it meant the owners would do no improvements ever because the red tape made it prohibitively expensive. Parts of the space were literally falling down and we had to hire a homeless man to live in the basement to keep the other homeless people from breaking in all the time. <laughs> Kirsten, the artistic director, was a powerhouse of a woman, shrewd and brilliant at what she did. Quirky enough to get the side eye from the bigger theaters in town. In the beginning, we were flying by the seat of our pants working insane hours and physically training our ensemble of actors in the downtime between shows. It was exhausting and exhilarating, but we were pretty damn good at it and we had a lot of fun. My first show with the company was the biggest musical we'd ever produced, a take on Alice in Wonderland story only set in the music industry and including an amazing drag queen of hearts, of course. One evening, we realized that one of our main actors was pretty outrageously altered. Do you think he's drunk? Kirsten asked me. Possibly. Could be more. But he's got to lift an actor in the musical number in the second act, and that is not going to go well. Damn it. 
I pulled the actor aside at intermission to assess the situation. It was a potential disaster. He was swaying on his feet, eyes wildly dilated, speech just starting to noticeably slur. I fired him on the spot. Sent him home in a cab, then grabbed one of the minor characters, handed him a copy of the script, and made an announcement to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, one of our actors got sick and we had to send him home. I lied. So this guy's gonna go on for him. Yeah, the costumes don't fit. He's not off book, but you're all gonna cheer your fucking hearts out, all right? Get on board, it's gonna be amazing. The audience cheered in response, and it was actually probably one of our better shows ever. After only a couple of months on the job, Kirsten started hinting that there was more to the space than I may be ready to accept. Some nights, there were audience members who hadn't paid for their seats. Audience members who didn't exactly have a pulse or solid form. Audience members who had probably been in the space, space since the 1930s when our theatrical home had been a mortuary. I assumed she was pulling my leg. I mean, messing with the new kid, right? Until one night, standing at the back of the house, I leaned into Kirsten and said, who's that? I was pointing at a man seated alone towards the back of the theater. He wore a top hat, his body a mere silhouette. Oh, that's top hat man, she answered. <laughs> I, I didn't see him come in, did he buy a ticket? Oh, no, he's a ghost. He doesn't have to buy one. I stared at her in disbelief, my brain straining to fully comprehend what she was telling me. He won't stay for the whole show, she went on. Ah, see, he left. I tore my gaze from her and whipped it back to where he had been sitting. He was gone. I did not believe in ghosts, but I had just seen one. But I did not <laughs> believe in ghosts, but I had just seen a ghost. Have some hot cocoa, Kirsten whispered. You'll feel better. <laughs> a couple months later, we produced an evening of shorts based on Edgar Allan Poe stories. I was up in the booth when the teenager we'd hired to run the spotlight whispered to me, hey, I maybe should have told you, but I'm an epileptic and I'm about to have a seizure. <laughs> I grabbed the spotlight with one hand and with the other hand lowered him to the floor. The stage manager jumped to our aid. I kept the spotlight focused on the solitary actor on stage who was performing the cast of Amatiao. And then I noticed that the actor, the actor wasn't the only thing on the stage. Something was crouching in the shadows just outside the ring of my spotlight. Something not entirely human. It was playing the role of Amontillado, gleefully participating in the drama while a kid convulsed at my feet. I held the light steady on my actor I believed in ghosts now, like 100%. The ghosts loved that production. They were clearly huge Poe fans. A supporter of the theater approached me after the show one night and asked, how'd you do that one effect? We were, to put it mildly, low budget. So I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. What effect? The one where the figure appeared behind the scrim and then kind of whooshed away into smoke. You saw what now, I asked. He repeated himself. Was the figure wearing a top hat? Yeah, he was, now that you mention it. I did notice that. You, sir, you've, you've just seen a ghost. He stared blankly at me for a moment. This man was retired military, so he needed a, a little moment for this news to land. 
Top Hat Man, your first ghost, I assume? He nodded dumbly. Yeah, he was mine too. I got him a cup of hot cocoa. Drink this, you'll feel better. I told him that and sent him on home. After that show, I learned to think of our ghosts as collaborators. And it wasn't long before we realized that they were protecting our artistic vision. We worked on an ensemble basis. So what that means is we had a core of actors who collaborated with, on, with us on most of our productions. We strongly believed in this method of creation as it helped us come up with some truly transformative work. But most shows required a mix of ensemble members and other local actors. Some of these outsiders were more interested in furthering their career than making outrageous art. We didn't love working with those divas. And as it turns out, the ghost didn't like those bitches either. <laughs> if you divaed up in that theater, your props were gonna get moved. You may set them before curtain, but when a difficult actor went to go get their prop and walk on stage, it would be three feet to the left and the scramble to find and grab it would fuck up their entrance. It would be so hard to keep a straight face when telling an actor that the ghosts don't like divas and they need to be nice or it was just gonna keep happening. <laughs> but if they got on board with the ensemble way of working, the ghosts would stop messing with them. It was science. <laughs> After about a year with the theater, my husband and I decided that we wanted to have a baby. It wasn't happening for us though. I threw myself into my work at Sledgehammer into this creation of life on stage. The art made with our ensemble, our ghosts, our audience. Seeing the ghosts of the theater became just a part of my life. And after I adjusted to the initial shock of them, I never felt threatened or unsafe in their presence. And then something changed. Those of us familiar with the space, we felt the shift. In order to turn on the lights in the theater, you had to enter through a backstage door walk through the pitch black dark of the theater, climb a narrow staircase into the booth, and activate the lights from the control board. I'd done this hundreds of times, but one day I was suddenly afraid. My flashlight winked out and I froze mid-theater, my whole body awash with sudden terror. I felt as though there wasn't enough air in the room, my heart racing wildly and a weakness flooding through me. Top Hat Man, I yelled. I knew I could trust him, but I didn't know if he'd actually come. The darkness was deep. The air vibrated with malice. I started to cry, pressing my back into the wall and trying to get enough air into my lungs to get my feet moving. Nothing. The darkness was silent and thick. Then I felt something next to me and my heart leapt. Top Hat Man? I pleaded into the dark, and suddenly I could move. I ran for the stairs, taking them two at a time, tripping and scrambling back up, slapping my hands for the control board, and the slider for the stage lights. Lights up. Nothing there. I climbed under the desk and sobbed for a minute, then pulled myself together to get ready for rehearsal. And it wasn't just me. I mean, actors told us they could feel cold spots on the stage. One of our more sensitive ensemble members felt something sinister lurking under the stage. He was visibly terrified. The feeling that something else was present, something other than our usually otherworldly residents, it connected all of us. In short, something was terribly wrong. During our run of the Devil's River, we hired a shaman as a consultant to help us incorporate elements of the Native American medicine wheel. Something was amiss during that show. Props moved mysteriously for all the actors. A fake gun disappeared. 
Actors who knew their choreography were somehow dancing right off the stage, as though the ground beneath their feet was shifting. Long after his work on the script is done, we asked the shaman to come back. Have you ever had to ask a board of directors for a couple hundred unbudgeted dollars so you could perform an exorcism on your performance space? <laughs> we hadn't either. But we assembled our team of woo-woo actors, armed ourselves with sage, and let the medicine man go to work. It was its own bit of theater, this ritual. But we treated it with all the deep reverence, playing our parts with respect and awe. Shaman told us that this place had become a beacon in the night for spirits. And as more and more gathered, our little theatrical home became more and more visible to the spirit world. That's when something dangerous moved in. We set to work, circling the theater with salt and sage and chants. Inside, we worked on teams to create a spiritual vortex, drawing in the spirits that had accumulated and opening passage to the next realm. I felt energy rushing skyward and a matching burst of it into the ground. I was confused and afraid. And then calm. The theater felt empty. The world felt empty. I felt empty. I'm never going to have a child here, I realized. We'd been trying to start our family for almost a year, and the truth of the statement made me feel heavy and dull. That night, I searched the internet for something that could fill up the emptiness the clearing had ignited. A month later, I was on an, an island in Washington with a bunch of women attending a long dance. Before the sun went down, we put our intentions into these little bundles and tied them around our necks, satchels of leather and hope. We spent the night dancing around the fire, drumming, singing, and connecting, and by the time the sun came up, I was wrung out and more empty than I thought possible. We all sat quietly around the fire as the sun crept over the horizon, taking turns to throw our bundles into the embers and let our intentions ascend to the sky. When I started my job at Sledgehammer, I believed in nothing, even vaguely religious or spiritual, and here I was in the woods, about to offer up my desperate need to a mythical sky mother. I tossed my bundle and watched it burn. That's when the emptiness drained away and we replaced with a certainty, I couldn't create any more at Sledgehammer. I was, I was done. I gave my notice at the theater on September 1st. Exactly one month later, after a year of trying, I was pregnant with my first daughter. During that last month at Sledge, I didn't see any of the ghosts, not even our beloved Top Hat Man. He didn't sit quietly in the audience or lurk behind the scrim anymore. The space was shockingly empty now. Nobody saw them. Kirsten stayed on for a while longer, but eventually moved out of the city, her own infant tucked in her arms, the theater once so full of life and death. It didn't survive her exit. Working at Sledgehammer was the most interesting job I ever had. And while I don't count myself among the spiritual or religious, I can honestly say I've seen some things in that theater that feel more real to me than any form of religion ever has. St. Cecilia's Playhouse is still standing but the space is not fit for anyone living anymore. It hunkers in the shadow of a high-rise development that was eventually built in its parking lot, a chain-link fence surrounding the Cumberland Arches, graffiti slashed across its walls, and the stained glass windows long gone or busted. I don't know if any of our ghosts ever found their way back, or even if it would be worth hanging out in, now that there were no actors to play with or productions to sit and watch. But sometimes when I drive by, I picture Top Hat Man sitting quietly in the back, waiting for the play to start, wondering what happened to the art he once got to share with our plucky little theater troupe. Elaine Gingery.
And bringing us home tonight, your final performer is Ginger Nocera. Take it away, Ginger. The year I turned 37, my job ended, my apartment flooded, my eight-year relationship imploded, and my car died. It was one ridiculous calamity after another for 12 long months. I felt cursed. By the time my 38th birthday arrived, I was determined to shake whatever plagued that year. My plan was to orchestrate a rendezvous in Portland with a former professor I'd been attracted to for years. I would become a woman who creates her own destiny and has intellectual men as lovers. <laughs> Smart men are my weakness, so when I enrolled in a university class a few years earlier, I formed a crush on the cute professor. On the first day of school, I passed him in the stairwell. He wore gold-rimmed aviators, a polo, dark wash jeans, and a pair of Converse. He looked only slightly older than me, and I could see the outline of his arm muscles as he carried his road bike up the stairs. <laughs> the professor and I were friendly and had a few things in common. Eventually, I graduated and moved to San Diego. Every few months, I had a sex dream with him in it, <laughs> and it would remind me, oh yeah, I should keep in touch. <laughs> we would email about my work and his research, nothing ever personal. This went on for four years until I became single again at 37. I sat down to carefully construct an email to the professor. I wrote three paragraphs and then ended with the line, and I'm single again, so that's new. He wrote back the same day and said, I wish I could see you. I had no idea he liked me that way. I read the line again and then totally panicked when faced with the opportunity of turning my fantasy into reality. So I waited three months to write him back. <laughs> when I finally emailed him back, we exchanged details about our personal lives. He asked when I was coming to Portland and he gave me his number. It had been a year since I had sex and nine since I had been with someone new. And here was someone I trusted and was attracted to. So I booked a weekend trip to Portland. The day of my trip finally arrived. I boarded a train, a plane, and then a car to get myself 1,100 miles from home. Because apparently I insist on a complicated web of traveling uh, long distances to have sex. <laughs> The professor took me out for drinks at a gorgeous hotel bar overlooking the Columbia River. He arrived in his business clothes straight from school, and we stayed there for three hours. He had two martinis, and I had two glasses of white wine. Everything was going just like I had always imagined. The sun set over the water, he was charming, and as we walked out of the bar, he lightly touched my lower back. If the scene was rated by a Cosmo magazine checklist titled, 10 signs he likes you, I think I would have scored at least a nine. The checklist would start with one. He wants to show you things he really likes. 
Check. He showed me pictures from his recent trip to the Maldives. Two. He doesn't look at his phone when you're hanging out. Check. He didn't take his eyes off me once. The next night, we planned to meet up at a mutual friend's party. I shower, shave everything. <laughs> Make sure I'm wearing the cute, horribly uncomfortable underwear and slather myself in lotion so I could pretend I'm naturally this soft and lightly vanilla scented all the time. <laughs> the professor is dressed in dark skinny jeans, boots, and a v-neck sweater. I feel like I won a secret ticket to see him in out-of-school casual clothes. <laughs> We chat with another couple, and it feels surreal. Me and the professor out with friends, drinking wine and laughing. After the party, the two of us move to a cozy bar and slide into a booth in the back. We talk and, and drink, but something shifts. My Cosmo checklist goes from 10 signs he likes you to 10 signs he's so not into you. The professor drives me home, and as we pull into the driveway, I say, you're welcome to come up if you want. <laughs> I suddenly feel like I'm in a romantic comedy, and this night could be my big comeback. Um, so I get us waters, and we sit down on the couch together. I sit in a tight ball on one end of the couch, while the professor is on the other end. I feel awkward, so I decide, I'll just be honest. Um, I don't really know what I'm doing. He smiles. Yes, I get that. <laughs> I thought about this situation before and what to do. Wait, what? He's thought about this before? It just seems like you have some strong boundaries up, I prod. Yeah, it's like I have a barrier around me. I'm cursed. And also, I feel like I'm taking advantage of you. I brush over his cursed comment and say, you're not taking advantage of me. I've been single a while, and I've had a crush on you forever. The professor smiles, grabs my hand, and pulls me into him. He begins kissing me, and all I could think is, oh, new aftershave smell. And then, oh my god, this is happening in real life. <laughs> Older men really know how to touch a woman. I commit right then and there to only date men that are older than me. We head to the bedroom. I lay down and we continue kissing, but something feels off. He leans back and says, I can't do this. He rolls onto his back next to me. Um, do you mean you can't do this emotionally or <laughs> physically? <laughs> I was expecting him to say he wanted to have a more special first night together, but instead he said, my ex-wife is a witch and she put a curse on me. I couldn't get an erection after our divorce. I, <laughs> I 
I had no idea how to respond, so I stayed quiet. He went on. Really? She was Wiccan. Well, how long have you been divorced? Eight years. Eight years? This man had not been able to get an erection for eight years, and the only cause he could think of was a curse from his witch ex-wife. I stayed quiet and mentally went through a list of responses. Does the curse have a statue of limitations? Does Viagra override the powers of the curse? Can I see it? I mean, I don't mean to brag, but I've never met a penis that didn't like me. Then suddenly he was dressed and had leapt off the bed. As I fumbled with my clothes, he told me over and over, this has nothing to do with you. I walked with him outside. He hugged me tightly, put his hands on either side of my face, and gave me a long kiss. The tenderness of that kiss shot straight past my brain and tugged at my heart. I rushed back upstairs with a tight knot of emotions in my chest. A few minutes later, I got a text from the professor. Home, great to hang out. Sorry, I bailed. <laughs> Sorry, I bailed? What does that even mean? The next day, I thought about him all day and hoped he would contact me. I showered, shaved, and kept my makeup on past 8 p.m., just in case. And I wondered, what happened to the late 90s romantic comedy from the night before? He should be knocking on my door any moment now. But as the night wore on, I realized two things. One, the professor wasn't going to show up or text me. And two, both of our lives were never really cursed. I had someone I shared a life with leave, and it hurt and sucked. The other stuff, a flooded apartment, a job that ended, and a broken car would have happened anyway. But something else occurred that year, too. Change. I moved into a new apartment, got a better job, and bought a car. It was still messy and complicated, but there wasn't anyone to blame. Bad, unfair things happened to everyone. And the key was to take responsibility, move on, and try your hardest to stay soft and open. <laughs> I, took off, <laughs> I took off all my makeup, put on pajamas, and curled up on the couch. 38 was going to be different because I was different. And if I was a dude and some pivotal part of my sexuality stopped working, I would be the first one in, the in line at the doctor's office, especially if I knew a smart, cute, brave woman was coming to visit me on her 38th birthday. Thank you. That is Ginger Nocera, everybody. And that is our show, Season of the Witch, recorded in January of 2019 at our beloved Whistle Stop Bar. 
Your performers once again were Amanda Kassar, Ariana Rommel, David Schmidt, Jennifer Coburn, Shelley DeAngelis, Elaine Gingery, and Ginger Nacera. If you want to see the videos of the show, check out our YouTube channel. It's just So Say We All Online. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you haven't already. It would please us greatly if you'd leave us a review, which somehow magically lets other people know we exist. And if you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get involved, get in touch, upcoming live shows that you can be a part of, sign up for our newsletter and more, just hop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is our program director. Jake Arkey is our Los Angeles production manager. Brent Hanavy is social media manager. And our original music is provided by the haunting Kirk Conan of AMFM Music. Our outro music, Blue Little, comes to us from 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love to have you as one of those members. Just hop over to sosayweallonline.com support and sign up at any level of monthly giving to help keep our lights on. Thank you so much for listening, and maybe the next story will be yours.